From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It can be a deadly position to hold someone in. Prone. It's how George Floyd was murdered. Today, Chris Vanderveen of Nine News revisits his investigation into just how common deaths like Floyd's are nationwide. Then, Colorado passed major police reforms last year. Now lawmakers are eyeing more changes. But as we hear in the politics podcast Purplish, it could be a steeper hill to climb. And later, Coloradans are telling us about the projects they'd planned during the pandemic but didn't finish like working out, sewing a dress, reading Don Quixote. We'll hear their stories today, and we'll share an essay from a teenager about why it's all okay. Taking the pressure off of myself to consistently be busy has greatly improved my happiness and self-esteem. While journalism is retreating in many places across the country, CPR is putting more resources to work for you. Communities all over Colorado are in need of critical information, and your support ensures that trustworthy news remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. As demand grows for CPR services, so does the need for additional resources. Your membership helps fund the important work ahead. A reliable way to give is monthly as an Evergreen member. Get started at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. George Floyd died after being held in a prone position, face down and handcuffed with pressure to his neck. Nationally, an investigation by Denver's Nine News found evidence of at least 107 similar deaths. Their story called Prone came out in November, but we want to shed new light on it, given the recent verdict and the continuing conversation around police brutality. Chris Vanderveen led the investigation at nine, which continues. Chris, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Briefly, put a finer point on what this form of restraint by police looks like. I mean, you've, you've looked at hours of video. Prone restraint is incredibly common in policing. Police officers use it all the time. And it's what you see when you see officers put somebody down on the ground, face down, and it's used to handcuff somebody. And that's really a critical aspect of prone restraint is that it it is an effective way to try to handcuff somebody who may be uh, less inclined to cooperate with police. And because of that, they get them down. The question is then what happens after they're handcuffed? And that's what we really tried to explore with this series. And so I imagine this becomes lethal when it goes beyond just the handcuffing, when this becomes a position people are kept in. It's the weight and the position and the combination of the two can, not always, but can lead to problems, significant problems with the one's ability to breathe. And the problem is, is that The federal government through the U.S. Department of Justice back in 1995 said, don't do this. They told police officers around the country, once you get somebody handcuffed, you have an obligation as an officer to turn them on their side, turn them on their back and watch their level of consciousness. And in fact, that level of training has sort of made its way into policing around the country. The question that I kept on asking is, why don't they just do it? Why do I see death after death after death of people in prone positions that are being held for many, many minutes long after really sort of the ethics of the situation call for it? Okay, so you're you're saying basically that it's okay to put someone under the law in prone position 
momentarily to get them handcuffed. That's okay. And then the directive is get them out of that position so that they can breathe. Yeah, safely. it's not a law. It's re- really just sort of training that officers go through okay. and best practices for policing and court systems. We, we hear in Colorado, the Tenth Circuit and the federal system and the Tenth Circuit has said in a variety of opinions, most notably with a with an opinion, I get a little nerdy here, Weigel versus Broad, that court opinion, which was a death of an individual up Bruce Weigel up in Wyoming, said once the officers have somebody handcuffed, the rules of the game change. You have to change what you're doing. And if you don't, the court system can find it to be excessive force. This was primarily an issue with civil cases because all, most all these cases are handled in the civil sphere. But now with the George Floyd death yep. and the Derek Chauvin trial, it moves it to that next level of being a potential criminal case. Of course, we saw this as well with Eric Garner in New York. You describe a few cases in prone in Colorado, one in New Mexico where the parents of Daniel Turner filed a wrongful lawsuit, wrongful death lawsuit after they watched their son die in police custody. Uh, tell us just briefly that story. Yeah, Daniel Turner is is was is common with a lot of these cases. The parents had called 911 because they were looking for medical help for their son. The police officers in Farmington, New Mexico came out and quickly put him down on the ground and continued to restrain him prone and the 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 parents who are watching they're looking for medical help for their son. We don't just call 911 because we need police officers to handcuff somebody. We call 911 because we may need medical attention. We may need some 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 assistance. And that's what the parents did in that situation. And very, very quickly, it turns south and the parents are watching their son die right in front of them. And it's this situation over and over and over again. I think this country was collectively and rightfully so, horrified by what it saw when George Floyd died under Derek Chauvin's knee. I don't think the question has been asked enough, how many other times is this happening? And it's happening a lot. It is, it, it is rare, but it happens enough, and there's enough of a pattern that it suggests to me that there's a problem a systemic problem with police training. In your reports, you uh, speak with Daniel's father, Walter Turner, about what he witnessed. There was no resistance. He was just trying to maneuver to breathe. They would not let him up to breathe. When you physically see it, there is no way in the world you can't tell me what happened. And I just want to highlight something you said there, Chris Vanderveen from Nine News. The parents had called 911 because they wanted to help him. How often does that happen where the intentions are not that, you know, someone needs to be restrained because they're, you know, involved in immediately dangerous behavior or criminal behavior, but they, they want help for someone? The majority of these cases that we looked at, and I looked at all these cases really closely, The majority of these cases involve somebody, for lack of a better term, acting erratically, where somebody was sort of walking around, somebody calls 911, doesn't know what they're doing. At the most, these are low-level crimes, and sometimes they're not even crimes that in and of themselves. And, And maybe we should say, whether they're crimes or not, 
no one should be placed in a prone position long term. I think under it's, it's under no, yeah. under no circumstances. And that's the issue is that, again, there's that moment to get them handcuffed. There's almost like two segments of the story. There's everything that leads up to them being handcuffed. And then once they're handcuffed, the story has to change no matter what the first part of the story was. Right. Just to reiterate the number, 107 people you find since 2010 have died in the prone position. There is an extremely concerning racial breakdown here as well. Absolutely. And that's something that can't be denied. You're looking at a population of people within this group that is disproportionately black, Hispanic, Latino. And because of that, you have to ask yourself the question, what's going on here and why does that happen? Why does it keep happening? And I think there's systemic issues at play here. Daniel Turner in New Mexico was white, but he is, it is disproportionate in terms of what's happening in the country. And you're seeing many more black, many more Latino people who are being killed under these circumstances than white. And that's, that's troubling in and of itself as well. Just to put ourselves in the officer's shoes, is there a chance that someone who is handcuffed could be a threat if they're turned over, that there could be kicking, that there is something vulnerable about that position Yes, for the officer? To some extent, yes. But there are other things that officers can do. There are such things called hobbles. You may hear that reference where people... They tie their legs together. This idea that we had of a long time ago of hog tying, that, that is not supposed to happen whatsoever, where the legs are brought behind the back in sort of a very cruel way. That's not supposed to happen at all. But what they do now is hobbling, and they can do that, and they've called for that number of cases here in Colorado. But the bottom line is, and I've spoken to numerous police trainers, people who are police officers themselves, and they say unequivocally, the rules of the game change. Once they're handcuffed, you have to treat the situation differently. And you almost have to treat it as a potential medical condition Mm. and not just sort of a criminal arrest. There is, in fact, a former police officer from Rhode Island in your report who trains other officers. And let's listen to him. As I've said in training at times that we ought to have that printed on the dashboard of the police car and maybe tattooed to the back of everybody's hand. Get off them and get them into a position that facilitates breathing. You know, like I say, what, you know, and I say this in training, what do you lose by that? So why isn't the word getting to the officer on the beat? That's, it's an excellent question. One that I've contemplated for about a year and a half that I've looked into this. I started looking into this after David Baker died in, in Aurora, Colorado in late 2018. And I kept asking myself, why does this keep happening? Because if you look at police training manuals, there's always there's generally a line in there. Denver has it. Aurora has it where the officers are told to do this. They call it putting somebody in a recovery position. And that's just really turning them over. And I think there's lots of theories as to why this continues to happen. I think the training hasn't been effective because. I see in, in, the, in the body cams that I look at, and I've looked at dozens of body cams of people literally dying in front of the officer in front of them, the, it's not instinctual. And when it's not instinctual for an officer to get off of somebody, to me, that suggests that the training is lacking. Also, 
there is science involved here. And you heard a little bit of this come out in the Derek Chauvin trial. Mm. And I'll try to sort of simplify it as much as I can. But there are doctors in the country who will go around and testify on behalf of police departments and say that the actions of those police officers are largely inconsequential in terms of the death of the person below them. It's controversial, and it's gotten a lot of play. A lot of courts have accepted this testimony from doctors around the country, and it's a small group of doctors. The good thing is, is that a number of other doctors in other fields are coming out and saying that's not correct. Which we also saw in the Chauvin trial. You heard that, that one of the doctors, Martin Tobin, in the Chauvin trial specifically called that science highly misleading. And it was a moment in that trial that I think blew past a lot of people because they haven't nerded out like I have. No. With this subject of the last year and a half, but I paid attention to it because when he said highly misleading, he's telling a system, he's telling the judge, he's telling all of us that this old science that has been listened to for judges for many, many years that gives police officers the idea that maybe their actions are okay, it's not okay to continue telling that science in front of judges. So in this way, the verdict in the Chauvin trial may be a game changer for the awareness of the consequences if police don't follow these guidelines. Did the reform package at the state legislature address prone position? Nothing. In particular? And, and, and this is what I keep trying to say out loud as much as I can. We've talked a lot in this country about police reform after the death of George Floyd. In fact, George Floyd's name is on a lot of legislation that you see around the country. And almost no one has addressed the singular issue as to why George Floyd died. He died because he was held prone and there was weight on his back and on his neck. And because of that, that's how he died. Yet you look at legislators around the country, you look at Congress, there's a, there's a there's a large act in Congress that's going through right now. There's there's talk here in Colorado as to what to do. Nobody's addressing this issue. Only one state so far, Nevada of all states, has mandated to put somebody in a recovery position. Right now, there is a hole when it comes to this issue. I know that in Colorado, the law addressed carotid holds, but that's just that's a different kind of hold from prone. Chris, I know that this work continues. I look forward to seeing more of what you are reporting. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Chris Vanderveen of Nine News shared his investigation into the use of prone restraint in law enforcement. That investigation continues. State lawmakers did something unusual last year. After the murder of George Floyd, they agreed broadly on major reforms to policing. We had momentum for the community to get things done, not just in Denver, but across the state of Colorado. If the murder had not happened, we would not have the accountability measures that we have put in place that we do today. Even with Democrats in charge, it would not have happened. That is Democratic State Representative Leslie Harrod. Well, now the legislature is back at work and considering more changes to the criminal justice system. But the dynamics are different this time. And that's the focus of the latest episode of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Criminal justice reporter Allison Sherry joins Benta Berkland from our public affairs team. You can't really look at the bills this year without first understanding what Herod helped pass last summer. 
Yes, she passed, not single-handedly, but she was a really large force behind Senate Bill 217, which as a non-legislative person, I try to get the numbers out of the bills and just say it was a big police reform bill from 2020. It was on the heels of all of the police brutality protests Mm -hmm. last summer. Um, I remember them voting on this bill. You could actually hear the police protests out on the streets because the windows were open at the Capitol. This bill makes really broad changes to how police officers do their job, from their use of force rules to how they keep track of data on who they stop to the fact that they can't use chokeholds. They have to all wear body cams. If you talk to any police chief or sheriff in the state or any cop on the streets, if you mentioned Senate Bill 217, they would absolutely all know what it was and how it's going to change their job. The other thing it does is broadly get rid of qualified immunity. So it makes it a lot easier to sue an individual officer. And I would say that it's not all taken effect yet. Some of the new rules on use of force and not using chokeholds took effect the minute the governor signed the bill. But other things like body cameras and data tracking are going to be taking effect um, in coming years. And so law enforcement agencies are still trying to figure out how they're going to do some of this stuff and pay for some of this stuff as well. And so I think those are some of the objections we're starting to hear or have heard from law enforcement about bills this session. Like, hey, we haven't even ramped up or everything hasn't gone into effect from the bill last summer. And a lot of these proposals this session have run into significantly more opposition than the sweeping bill lawmakers passed, even though that was very complex. It passed so widely, and that really struck me. You know, even law enforcement didn't oppose it. Yeah, and I would say also on that, you mentioned law enforcement agencies kind of pushing back on some of the new bills this year. One metaphor I heard from a sheriff I interviewed was this is like changing the rules of football in the fourth quarter. We're still Mm. in the middle of playing on Senate Bill 217, and we don't want to get our rules changed when we haven't even implemented or, or learned how this is all going to affect our jobs. And another thing I've, I've learned from you, Allison, and from some lawmakers I've been talking to is a big difference this year is that the crime rate is up. Yeah, crime was higher in every category tracked by the Colorado Bureau of Investigation from 2019 to 2020. And that especially was true in violent crime and auto theft. Mm. Um, but even homicides were up almost 50 percent in Denver alone last year. So I think that's definitely affecting the debate. That really speaks directly to one of the bills this session that's controversial and has had a lot of divisions, and that's Senate Bill 62. And what that measure would do is prevent police from taking someone to jail for misdemeanors and even some low-level felonies that are nonviolent. What are you hearing from people who are advocating for this proposal? You know, most of the criminal justice reform advocates I've talked to point out that Colorado's jail population is out of control. It's high. The jails are packed. And, you know, just to make a quick little 101 on jails versus prisons, county jails, you get arrested, you get sent to jail. A lot of people, 60 to 70 percent on any given day in jail, are pretrial. So they've not been convicted of any crime. They're just sitting in there waiting for their court date, waiting for their hearing. This is Denise Maez. She's the lobbyist for the American Civil Liberties Union. You know, we've known for so long that the majority of individuals in our jails are innocent. 
and there's largely there simply because they can't afford to pay or the money bond to get out. So they may have a thousand dollar bond on a failure to appear for a traffic stop, but they can't afford to pay that, so they're sitting in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ACLU has for years worked on how to get the jails less crowded with people who are pretrial. And the sponsor is Democratic Senator Pete Lee. He chairs the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, and he has another goal with this bill as well. And he said he's really hoping that if police can't make as many arrests, they'll be more focused on de-escalation. What are you hearing from law enforcement and prosecutors about Lee's bill? I think some of the most compelling arguments actually come from crime victims. This is Connie Brenton. She went and testified against this bill early on to the Senate Judiciary Committee. She's just been a repeated victim of shoplifting and crime and her art store on the Pearl Street Mall. With no meaningful consequences or deterrence, they have become emboldened to do whatever they want. They now steal right smack in front of us. They look us in the eye, they pick up the item, and walk out of the store. The situations are so frequent now that we know these perpetrators by name. And they are becoming increasingly violent. They've hurt her employees. I actually, like, physically assaulted her employees. Mm-hmm. And she's just worried that people aren't facing consequences for their actions. I think it's also worth noting that, yes, Democrats are in the majority, but they were definitely not united on this bill either. It's It's been delayed quite a bit and continues to be as they try to work out some of the details. I guess it's been languishing, if you will. <laughs> and, and Lee did have to make some changes already. Yeah, I feel like this bill, more than any other bill, and at least in this subject matter for me, has its own life. I mean, it has its own pro and con, Twitter handles, social media, call your lawmaker, tell them to vote yes against this, vote no against this. It's been quite something. You know, it's interesting. A lot of criminal justice bills, the big heated debates are like the death penalty Mm -hmm. and getting rid of the death penalty. That affected three people in Colorado. I mean, it affected the victims, of course, but the three people on death row in Colorado, that was it. But this bill, I think, does have such a big life because we're talking about, like I said, thousands of people a day are arrested for these Mm -hmm. kinds of crimes. It could make a very big impact uh, one way or the other. And I think that's why you're seeing so much debate about it right now. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good point. And I talked to Democratic Senator Jeff Bridges. He's one of those Democrats that was not on board with this bill because he just felt it was way too broad. But now he is supporting it. He said what really changed his mind are amendments to the bill that would allow police to arrest someone for entering a home or stealing a car. And he said he just could not in good conscience prevent police from arresting someone for you know, stealing a car. Bridges said it's also important to him personally that police still have discretion to arrest someone if there's a violent interaction. So, for instance, if someone punches another person, you know, they can still face an arrest because it's a violent offense. Jeff Bridges now supports the bill, but this is actually why some of the law enforcement um, officers and sheriff's deputies and people I've talked to don't support the bill. Is It's like you're making, just in this little conversation, Bente, mm-hmm. you're making all these little distinctions between you can arrest this person for this kind of a punch yeah. and if you steal this car, but you can't arrest someone if they do this other kind of assault or they break a window to get into your house, but they don't get into the house. You don't get arrested for that, but if you walk into the house, you do get arrested for that. I'm not sure. The, the amendments are constantly changing, so right. I don't want to be quoted on what the bill, you know, on that particular little piece. But I would say overall, law enforcement officers would say, we don't have law degrees. Like, how am I supposed to know when I'm a single officer responding to a call at 4 a.m. in Brighton about something, a breaking and entering or something, or an assault at a bar, you know, whether this person deserves to go to jail or not deserve to go to jail.
criminal justice reporter Allison Sherry and Benta Berkland from our public affairs team with an excerpt of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Catch the full episode via Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and at CPR.org. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with pandemic projects that didn't quite come together and why that's okay. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC. I was smoking crack every 15 minutes. Hunter Biden talks about his journey into and out of addiction on the season two finale of Back From Broken. It's all a part of who I am. And I hope that I'm able to show people that you don't have to be ashamed of it. Find Back From Broken on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, and wherever you listen. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. And I have some help telling this next story from our Western Slope reporter, Stina Sieg, who's in Grand Junction. This is a story about things Coloradans hope to achieve during the pandemic lockdown, but just did not manage to get to. You know, for me, I I really, I wanted to run 50 miles, which might sound a little pie in the sky, but, you know, like I've run marathons before and I was thinking, this is the time I'll really get down to it. I'll run this ultra marathon distance. And, uh, you know, instead, I, I didn't run that much. And then I fantastically broke my foot and had to relearn how to walk. Wow. That, that, <laughs> yeah. that feels epic as well. Thank you. Thank you. Just I remember having uh, fantasies of being able to walk into the kitchen. And for you, I mean, I know you must have had a pandemic goal that you just didn't quite meet. For sure. When gyms closed, I bought this piece of exercise equipment. It's a fan bike, so it uses air as resistance. And the handlebars go back and forth for an upper body workout. So did you use it? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I used it, but not like I said I would. I mean... I placed it in front of the TV, thinking that any time I watched the boob tube, I would be on the bike. Uh, But I can safely say that my bum has been on the couch plenty when the TV is on. Uh, Best laid plans. Uh, (laughs) So Ryan and I took to Twitter, sharing our own unfulfilled pandemic goals, and we asked for yours. And so many of you replied. Including Anna Seeger of Boulder. I have three kids and a part-time job, and so I tried to set my pandemic project targets pretty low because I was barely managing to kind of keep my life together. So I thought I would try to read Don Quixote. First, I thought I would read it in Spanish. And then I decided to scale that back and got it in English. And I think I started it in June or July. And I'm on page 550 of 900 and something. (laughs) Okay, so so it's not quite done yet. It's not quite done yet. Now, this is uh, obviously the novel by Miguel de Cervantes, and it turns out that this was quite a quixotic adventure for you, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. I'm fighting my windmills and my giants here. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have the book with you? Um, I can go get it quickly sure. if you want me to. I'd love it. Okay. 
I think I heard one of your kiddos. <laughs> yes. They all come running every time I have an interview. I feel like this yes. is just proof of why it would be difficult to finish Don Quixote. <laughs> Will you open it to where you left off? Uh, here we go. Chapter 16. Okay, read me the first few lines of this chapter, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to get you a little further together. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> Regarding what befell Don Quixote with a prudent knight of La Mancha. With the joy, contentment, and pride that have already been mentioned, Don Quixote continued his journey, imagining, because of his recent victory, that he was the world's most valiant knight-errant of the age. He considered any adventures that might befall him from that time on as already... Anna Seeger of Boulder, getting a little further along there in Don Quixote. Stina, have you read Don Quixote? Oh, I definitely have not. Um, but during the pandemic, meaning last week, I actually did finish a book I had started in 2009 and forgotten about. Wow. Okay. There's a little achievement. So who did you talk to? I know. I felt really good. Oh, so many people. I mean, I think one of the most profound stories I heard and one of the most devastating was from a man named Austin Potts from Denver. Devastating. Wow. Okay. It's a long-standing project that really got traction during the pandemic. It's a 1965 Mustang Coupe. And it belonged to a friend of his dad's. You know, and Austin had been working on it on and off for 20 years. Wow. I know. But the pandemic really gave him that, that time to focus on it. And he did enough work that he actually had... Enough to hand off to a body shop to try to get some fixes done that he couldn't get to. And they could just fix the rust properly and give it a proper good paint job. So, you know, Austin sent it off to a body shop, a body shop in Texas. He used to live there. He has family there. And finally, the shop calls him. They say the Mustang is ready to go. Austin's fully vaccinated. He's ready to go. He feels safe enough to travel, and he decides to fly down and see his Mustang. It looked great. We took photos, and we were talking and sharing stories about Mustangs and classic cars and plans, and it, it was a good time. But uh, unfortunately, that is not the end of the story. You know, Austin still had to get the car back to Colorado so he hired this uh, transportation company to do the delivery. You know, it's like a, a truck with a trailer and it hauls vehicles these long distances. And finally, you know, it's the day the Mustang is supposed to arrive. Austin is, is just so excited that he gets up early. They gave me a call. I was like, oh, transported people. I'm so, I'm so glad to hear from you. And they said, hmm, maybe not. It's <laughs> like, what? And... She said your car was involved in an accident in Tyler, Texas. And it's not just like a fender bender. You know, in Austin, he couldn't even quite picture it until he saw a clip from the evening news. A messy situation during the evening rush hour in Tyler. Just in time for dinner, this happened. Take a look. An 18-wheeler involved in an accident spills a load of, yeah, that's chicken parts. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Luckily, none of it got on my Mustang. <laughs> Not that it would have hurt it, but... <laughs> Not that it would have hurt it because his uh, his Mustang was very, very, very damaged. 
It looked like Hulk. Like, straight out of a Marvel movie. It looked like Hulk had just punched the door. It's just, it's ugly. And so now that Mustang is somewhere in Texas and it's waiting for the insurance company to look at it. And all Austin has is this picture of his mangled Mustang. How does that picture make him feel? Well, you know, he's uh, he's still figuring that out. <laughs> you know, uh, disbelief. I mean, I'm surprised. It seems like other people take the news harder than me. Maybe it just hasn't hit me. But it's kind of like a go figure. Like, I've been waiting this long for it anyway. Uh, you know, why should I ever have it kind of thing. Oh. You know, the one thing that strikes me, Stina, is... Not riding my stationary bike, that's my fault, right? In, in this case, these were things that were out of Austin's control. Well, our next story comes from a guy who was thinking about where's Waldo during the pandemic. Okay, interesting. And uh, why did he have that on the brain? Well, he was thinking about how there are always crowds with Where's Waldo that make him hard to find. But of course, crowds largely became non-existent in the pandemic which means it would be really easy to find Waldo. And this storyline comes up in his unfulfilled project. I'm Matthew Downey. I live in Cap Hill in Denver. And my unfulfilled pandemic project was getting into stop motion animation. That's not a small goal to set for yourself. No, it, I honestly, I mean, I've always been like fascinated by Nightmare Before Christmas, that kind of stuff. What is this? It's someplace new. Jack, look out! Whoa! And so just last year when I started working from home and I lived by myself, so I was like, what What can I do that can take some time? And I just thought of that. And honestly, I didn't put a lot of thought into it. I realized after the fact how much work it actually is. That one video I sent you for 20 seconds, that took pretty much an entire Saturday. Okay, this is the video you sent me. Why don't we watch it? Okay. Yes, it's a total of 26 seconds. There's Waldo, it's called. Okay, so this is an image of Waldo, like the Where's Waldo guy, turning his head towards the camera. Yes, yeah. I was going for like a horror vibe. And then a T-Rex comes and eats him. <laughs> that's it. That's, I mean, no, I don't want to say yeah. that's it. It's more than I could have done. Uh, okay, thank you. Yeah, but that, that is it. That's it. Because you got to take one picture for every like, I don't know, quarter of a second. And yeah, it's just, it's difficult to figure out. I mean, I'm glad I made it. I think it's okay. It's very short, but it works. So Matthew Downey did not become a grand animator, but you know, he got a few seconds in, Stina. <laughs> That's way more than I, you know, animated over the past year. <laughs> I, I think that this idea of my pandemic plan versus my pandemic reality. It was really well illustrated by uh, Ambria Reed. She's a teacher. She lives in Denver. And she was not in class for an entire year. She taught from home. And at the beginning of the pandemic, she had this grand plan. And it's one of those plans that, you know, a lot of people had. I hoped that I would lose some weight and do some working out. And that did not happen. I mean, she had even put a workout room in her house after her gym closed. And did not really use it. It haunts me every day. Um, <laughs> and thank God it's on the third floor. So I don't have to look at it every day. <laughs> but the beautiful thing is that the energy that Ambria would have put into working out, 
she put into her garden instead. And she made it bigger than ever before. Basil, tomatoes, jalapenos, my parsley, my mint. I made a lot of mojitos um, this past summer. And she taught herself to make pizza dough. And she made these fabulous pizzas with fresh toppings, you know, for her and her husband. We ate really well. Now that things are more open and stuff, we definitely backslid into more, you know, um, more of my teacher habits. But like, you know, we we did eat a lot of good food and I'm happy for that. So, you know, not totally according to plan, but Ambria says she became a much better cook and she got to spend a lot more time with her husband and her dog. That dog had a fabulous year. Well, Sina, for our final story, I understand that you took a little road trip. I did, about seven miles away here in Grand Junction. I got to see Kaylin Roach's unfinished project firsthand. She has this hobby that I had never even heard of. I love historical sewing. I got into historical sewing um, probably about 2013 when I became a can-can dancer. (laughs) That's a lot to unpack there, but she means the dance from the 1800s, like with women doing kicks? Yeah, exactly. Kaylin, she was in a can-can troupe, and that's when she learned how to create a historically accurate can-can dress. So when the pandemic hit, she thought, you know, hey, I got some time. Why not just go all in? You know, I'll make a big historical ball gown, you know, this time from the 1700s. And then she showed me how far she got. It's very, very unfinished. I used to have pleats all up and down the back, and I was going to put a zipper in, and there was all this lining work and basting that I did, and then it came time to draft the sleeves, and that's where I kind of (laughs) stopped because I hate doing sleeves. (laughs) I know. So it sort of looks like a skeleton of a dress, you know, a skeleton in flowery print. It's been that way for months. But Kaylin ended up putting her efforts elsewhere. I got a little distracted with a giant pumpkin. You know, like, as you do. Her, uh, she, she grew it from seeds her mom gave her. And I think it ended up being about 150 pounds. A 150-pound pumpkin? Yeah. And she says when it comes to giant pumpkins, that's actually not even that big. I had no idea. She took me right to the spot in her yard where this big guy grew. It was on a 25-foot-long vine. Where that little pile of bricks is, that's where I had a sign that said the BFP. And <laughs> um, it grew. Meaning what? Um, I'm not allowed to say it on public radio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Kaylin, she measured that pumpkin, the BFP, every single day. And there would be days where it would jump five inches in growth. <gasps> It was it was just astonishing seeing this pumpkin just literally growing in front of my eyes. But Kaylin says the real joy was not in the pumpkin's size. She just loved the act of caring for it. I would spend my mornings weeding my garden, and then I'd sit and I'd kick up my feet, and I'd just watch my garden. It was a very um, meditative process working out here. She raised a pumpkin, but it sounds like you never got to see it. What, like, what happened to it? Well, the giant pumpkin became a giant jack-o'-lantern for Halloween. And then, you know, the deer and other creatures started gnawing on it, and Kaylin had to throw it away. 
she couldn't even use the compost from the city because it was closed due to the pandemic. Which was really sad, but I have these seeds now from my pumpkin, and I'm very excited for that next pumpkin that I'll grow. So her husband then asked her, like, are we going to become those giant pumpkin people? (laughs) And she said, yeah. So get ready for it. Wait, giant pumpkin can-can historical sewing people. I mean, isn't that what you'd expect from Twitter? (laughs) I suppose so. Just some of your stories of pandemic projects unfulfilled. But we want to wrap up this segment with a voice that encourages you to be kind to yourself. Right. I mean, you've lived through a freaking pandemic. That's an achievement unto itself. We have an essay for you. It's about what the author calls toxic productivity, proving that wisdom doesn't necessarily come from age. The writer is in high school. Yes, Olivia Fendrick is 15. She's a sophomore at Littleton High School, and she has in the past contributed to the Denver Post, but primarily writes for her school paper called Lions Roar Now. We had her read an excerpt of her op-ed titled Toxic Productivity, Be Still. Especially at the beginning of the pandemic, there was an extensive culture of people talking about how much they would get done in quarantine. Promises of new languages to be learned and home improvements to be made perpetuated the idea that every moment of free time available to us had to be used in some productive manner. But this all happened for the goal of feeling successful in quarantine without having many outlets to actually succeed in. So we constructed a world that made sense to us with impossible goals to reach. Since January, I've had a huge list of things to do over spring break, from prepping for my AP United States history exam to revising old math tests, I intended to have a week jam-packed with things to do and tasks to accomplish. But lo and behold, the break rolled around and in comparison to the rigid schedule I prepared, I did nothing. I slept and I binged crash course philosophy videos and I felt oh so guilty about not completing the tasks that I set out to do. I'd like to reconsider our usage of the word productivity. Perhaps instead of only being productive when we're completing tasks and projects for our employers or teachers, we're also being productive when we take time for ourselves. To live the most fulfilling lives we can, we have to remove ourselves, at least somewhat, from toxic mindsets and falling into the trap of becoming obsequiously attached to empty promises of success. Learning to remove yourself from the culture of toxic productivity isn't easy, and I'm not going to act like I'm an expert on this issue. But taking the pressure off of myself to consistently be busy has greatly improved my happiness and self-esteem. In days of pressure, take a deep breath and allow yourself to be still. 15-year-old Olivia Fendrick attends Littleton High School and shared some of her essay for the school paper, Toxic Productivity, Be Still. And for transparency's sake, I'll say that Olivia's mom works at CPR in a different department. Well, Stina Sieg, thanks for co-reporting this story with me. We finished it. We actually finished it. I know. Uh, Congratulations, and you're welcome. Stina is our reporter on the Western Slope, based in Grand Junction. And this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There is a crisis-level shortage in primary care doctors. Research from the University of Colorado shows it's particularly pronounced in rural areas and that medical schools may overestimate how many graduates take these jobs. 
Here's CPR's Dan Boyce. The demand side of the rural doctor equation, it's bad. There's a lot of it. Two-thirds of Colorado counties are classified as rural or frontier, and almost all are facing a primary care shortage. They need more supply, more doctors to care for patients there. Make a little bitty nick and put the thumb through, okay? So Dr. Mark Deutschman, he focuses on the supply side of that equation. He directs the rural track program at the CU Anschutz Medical School. Right now, he's teaching med students Coco Wham and Victoria Vorwald how to wrap real arm casts on each other. Do your little pull and feather it over. So much easier when your wrist isn't actually broken. (laughs) Deutschman's students in the rural track have these kinds of hands-on, practical workshops multiple times a month. The program seeks to nudge these future doctors toward primary care roles with the goal of placing them eventually in small towns. Primary care is the backbone of the healthcare system. It's the key to accessible, cost-effective, high-quality care. Deutschman says the shortage in rural docs feels about the same as when he started the Anschutz Rural Track in 2005. Yet there is a looming generational gap. So many rural doctors are on an average older and close to retirement. He says soon the number of vacant rural doctor's offices will begin quickly accelerating. That brings us to this new research. Deutschman was lead author on a study saying the nation's medical schools are overestimating the number of primary care doctors they're graduating. Doctors who could take those rural posts overestimating by almost double the real number. How could that be possible? Well, you don't know what somebody's going to do until they finish residency. The traditional method medical schools use to report primary care graduates gives figures before doctors enter multi-year residency programs. So Deutschman and his fellow researchers followed nearly 18,000 medical doctors around the country after they began practicing. And we tracked them down three to four years after they finished residency and found out what they were really doing. And the 42% that the schools would have claimed primary care turned into 22%. Just 22% of the doctors the researchers followed still practiced traditional primary care. That's because many docs in areas such as internal medicine or pediatrics move into higher-paying subspecialty positions, most often in urban communities. The American Association of Medical Colleges did not agree to an interview for this story, but in a statement, the organization expressed skepticism with the findings of Deutschmann's team. They say 30 new medical schools have opened nationwide since 2006, graduating more students, and that, quote, medical schools are indeed adequately addressing the primary care shortage. Deutschman says the evidence just does not support that, especially when rural doctor jobs in Colorado often take years to fill. This is good practice. Before this Anschutz Rural Track workshop, med student Victoria Vorwald had never had a real cast on before. Now she watches anxiously as colleague Coco Wham learns to saw that brand new cast right back off her arm. Dr. Deutschman darts between pairs of students doing this. He tells me about another issue 
further complicating the supply side of that rural doctor equation. Younger generations have a different expectation of work-life balance. They often don't want to be the only doc in town. People don't want to, you know, work 24-7, 365. And medicine is more complicated than it used to be. We know that it takes more than one new physician to replace a really active, dedicated, retiring physician. He says a model growing in popularity hires nurse practitioners or physician assistants to help doctors in far-flung posts. And he says telemedicine, yeah, that can help too. Not nearly enough to close the gap, though. And he says it's no substitute for being able to visit with a doctor face-to-face. Dan Boyce, CPR News. Finally today, as vaccinations continue to roll out, the return of live music looks more promising. Outdoor venues like Red Rocks and Levitt Pavilion are planning their summer schedules. Others, meanwhile, are postponing their season another year. Fans of Swallow Hill Music's summer concert series at the Denver Botanic Gardens will have to wait to see acts like Randy Newman and Mary Chapin Carpenter. They are tentatively scheduled for 2022. But while the big touring shows are scrapped for now, the gardens won't be silent. Grab your rocks and throws. Today is the day that we all had enough. Fight for what was yours. Today is the day that we take back control. Time to let them know. An event called Evenings Al Fresco is getting a reboot from its pandemic debut last summer. Musical acts are stationed throughout the gardens, with patrons taking in the sights and sounds. The lineup features lots of local talents, including Chicano funk band Los Mocochetes. Discrimination plagues all lives in our rights. It's time that we fight, so grab your rocks and throw. Today is the day that we are. They are just one of hundreds of artists who will perform this summer as part of the Denver Botanic Gardens Evenings Al Fresco. For those of us hungry for live music, the series has 20 dates on the books, June through August. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to the team that always blossoms. Carl Bielek, Ali Butner, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Stina Sieg and Grand Junction. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. So where is your How could you